Welcome to One on One with Ilion, a podcast featuring the activists, celebrities, and politicians who have made it their mission to make the world a better place. And now, here is your host, Ilion Ramos. Hello and welcome. On today's episode, we're talking about water. We all know water is at the core of human survival itself. Water is also one of, if not the most, important link between humans and the environment. But the lack of access to clean drinking water is an ongoing emergency in many parts of the world, including, believe it or not, many parts of the U.S. as well. To put this into perspective, we're joined by Richard Vanderberg, the Chief Program Officer at Wine to Water, an international nonprofit dedicated to bringing clean water to communities in need across the globe. And he's here to tell us all about their work and mission. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, the concept of Wine to Water as an organization is such a unique one. I don't think I can do it justice if I try to describe it. Can you explain to us what the organization does? So, Wine to Water is a water-focused organization focused on addressing the global water crisis. But I think what makes us unique compared to a lot of development organizations or water sanitation-focused organizations is our belief that just ordinary people applying themselves can make a difference. And that's probably what sets us apart from other organizations. So the organization was founded in 2004 by a gentleman named Doc Henley, who at the time was a bartender and uh, became exposed to the global water crisis and looking to make a difference and looking at what was happening in the world, reached out to his network, which were his customers and friends at the bars where he was working and sought their help in fundraising to address the needs of water in the world. And that's where the idea of linking the wine to water came from. Wow. And just like that, that one stroke of inspiration became what is now a worldwide organization. How many countries are you active in now? So we have offices in four countries, in Colombia, servicing the Amazon region, Dominican Republic, Tanzania, which is sort of all of East Africa, and then Nepal. But in addition to the four countries where we have our own direct offices and programs, we work with partners in tens of countries across the world outside of that to extend the reach of our organization. Nice. So the Dominican Republic, that's where I'm from. So And what kind of projects do you do once you are in those countries? So it's probably um, easier to think about it from like the problems we're trying to solve. So fundamentally, there's an issue with availability of water. So think about all those pictures we've seen across our lives of areas in East Africa where there's desert and no water. The fundamental lack of availability is the problem. And in those environments, we're able to address the need for water by doing things like wells and boreholes. The second issue is accessibility of water. So even if there's a well, it doesn't mean the water's making its way to a house or to a school or to a health center. Our experience is that even in places like Nepal, people walk hours a day to access the water to be able to bring it back up and down the mountains. So, like, the accessibility is an issue. Even with availability and accessible water, there's issues in terms of the acceptability, in terms of the quality of the water. So oftentimes, it's not safe to drink because of microbial content or because of heavy metals. 
So there's also solutions we put in place that purify the water and make it safe for consumption. And finally is the idea of affordability. So we're dealing with people who are some of the most vulnerable populations in the world who don't have the ability to pay for water or pay for water systems. And we work with them to create free water solutions. But in addition to that, you also do relief work, right? For example, I, I read that you were doing some projects in Turkey and Syria currently. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so I just got back from Turkey a couple of weeks ago. It's hard to appreciate the scale of the impact of the disaster. So I think the last I saw, it was like 50,000 square kilometers of area was impacted by these two earthquakes, which is a number almost too big to fathom. But like from my experience, when you're driving down a highway for hundreds of miles, there's not one village, town, city that you don't see buildings have come down and people have been displaced. And if you think about the effect on that, on the underlying systems of water and sanitation, they've all been completely disrupted. So our focus in, in Turkey and in Syria is twofold. One is to provide filtration devices so that people can access water safely and offset any contamination of the water. And then secondly, in the southern part of Turkey, a lot of the area is agricultural and it's all irrigated through irrigation wells. And those wells have been disrupted through the seismic activity as well. So a lot of our focus is helping to understand what the impact on those wells are and work with partners to rehabilitate those wells. And how do you identify what regions or communities are in need of your support? As a smallish organization, so much of our work is relationship-driven. And I think there's that old adage that life is a contact sport. So uh, whoever we get in contact with and is a like-minded individual and needs help, then we can provide support where we're happy to figure out a way to do that. I think if we go back and look at the history of places where we've worked, it's all been intensely relationship-driven. And I think that comes back to some of those founding principles that I mentioned earlier, that our belief is that ordinary people can do something and take action to make the world a better place. And when we find people who are just as crazy as we are, we link arms and try to make a difference. And I can only imagine in those connections the kind of stories that you must hear, because I think one thing that people may not understand is that the work that you do is not just about water, right? It has to do with, with livelihoods, with daily survival. How does your work help communities and individuals at that level? Yeah, you're right. It's extraordinarily complex. So I think the latest UN estimates are there's 2 billion people in the world who don't have access to safe drinking water. But I think if you look at those 2 billion people, there are also the 2 billion people who don't have access to healthcare or to food or to shelter or security. So... We're talking about people in very difficult situations and this very complicated context of poverty. Water is just fundamental to life. You can live, I think, four minutes without oxygen, four days without uh, water, and maybe 40 days without food. But at some point, water is essential for life. And by taking action around making water safe and available for people, we know that that has a huge impact, not just on the ability to sustain life, but it adds to people's livelihoods in terms of their increased health and increased ability to work or attend school or to increased access to water in terms of agriculture. And we know also that the predominant 
gender responsible for getting water. You know, we talked about Nepal and walking for hours. That's primarily the responsibility of the women in the household. So when we can make water more accessible, that really is a huge step forward in terms of women's empowerment and uh, gender equity and freeing up time around that. So when we think about it's just water, but it has extensions into so many domains that start to make a difference in that complex context of poverty. And I imagine also that it may be challenging at times being a foreign entity working within these different cultural contexts, right? Do you find that to be the case? Does that make the work easier or harder for you? Yeah, so I think as an organization, we've become very comfortable with the fact that we don't know a lot about the world in which we live. And one of our first steps in starting any programming is to assemble a group which we call the Water Usage Committee, which are our cultural advisors in terms of what their needs are and what they're looking to do in terms of improving water in their communities and ultimately partners in helping direct the programs. And by using that locally owned approach, we're able to make sure that there is a culturally appropriate fit for our programming in the communities where we work. Which is the right approach. I mean, you need to get that local angle right. Are your volunteers also from the local areas or do they come in from the United States? And where are you based, by the way? Based in Boone, North Carolina is our U.S. headquarters. Uh, so it's a mix. So um, for the bigger water program, so I can speak a little bit about Nepal, where the, the biggest problem is that the communities we're working with live on top of a hill. And the water is at the bottom of the hill in the valley. So at the moment, people walk to the bottom of the hill to, into the valley to get the water and bring it back to the top of the hill. And it just consumes a lot of time. It's heavy and there's a limitation on how much water can be carried. So our projects there have been to implement solar-powered pumping solutions that bring the water from the valley up to the community to storage tanks. And then it's piped out to each individual household. So each household has a tap with the availability of water. In order for us to do a program of that size, we require local participation. So uh, we've had work from labor from within that community, helping to dig the trenches and help prepare the site for the water towers. But we augment that with uh, great volunteers from across the world who join us in service projects to help make that work happen. And it's really so beautiful to watch how you engage not just the local volunteers in the American volunteers that come to work there, but also the local businesses and how you give sustenance to those businesses. I was watching, for example, a video about the work that you're doing in the Dominican Republic, and everybody looks so happy and engaged and they're loving the work that they do. The project in Dominican Republic is really just a beautiful convergence of science, community development, and art, because the gentleman who makes the filters, which are made out of ceramic, truly an artisan product. And what makes them interesting is, first of all, from an environmental impact perspective, it's okay if we need to ship plastic filters from here to some area that's been affected by disaster, because the immediate need is just getting clean water and filtration. But in places where long-term programming and community development is in place, like the Dominican Republic, the ability to create solutions out of locally derived material that have an equal or better filtration capability than the plastic filters and support local communities 
and also know that these products are incredibly well accepted into the communities where they're applied because they're from the community. So there's something really magic about that sort of intersection of all of those areas. And there's also something to be said about, you know, the sense of pride and ownership that comes from the fact that they built it themselves, right? Yeah. So the idea that it's a local artisan who's creating this and it's being transported to someone's home in the same community, it, it almost becomes a prized possession above and beyond its ability to, to filter the water as just a statement of community. And with all of these different variables to the program in the different countries, how are you able to measure the impact you have in the different communities? Yeah, so I, I think fundamentally, the common denominator from all of our interventions is just the number of people we're able to interact with, the number of lives who are impacted. We know that people who have access to clean water have healthier lives, so they have better school attendance, more ability to work, so they're important metrics that we look at as well in terms of number of days ill with diarrheal disease or number of days missed from work. But then, like we were talking about earlier, there's also some really important metrics related to women's empowerment and increasing the availability of women to do more than and be the carriers of the water. And then we've seen directly economic improvement in communities where we've done comprehensive solutions because of the increased income related to agriculture and irrigation related to the, the water that we're able to provide. It's hard to put into words or really appreciate what happens to any of us if we have three or four hours of our day doing very laborious activity like carrying five gallons of water, a bucket to a water source and then back from a water source and not doing that once ever, but doing that every day. When you relieve that, responsibility by making water more available, you can change the world. You increase the availability of someone's time, half their their day, a third of their waking time is all of a sudden available for something else. Now, I think it's been magic to see across the history of the organization, the way that people are able to take that opportunity and time and do things that are important to them to enrich their lives, their families and their communities. Wow. You know, when you put it in those terms, it really makes me think of how privileged we truly are. You know, having time for our families, for ourselves, that shouldn't be a luxury. I mean, the work that you're doing for these communities is truly immeasurable. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so now, since we're talking about luxuries, we can't talk about wine to water without asking about the why. How did the idea to do benefit wine events come about? Yeah, so I think you know most people in the Western world have heard the Christian story of water to wine. So it's like this interesting idea of the reverse of that is thinking about the wine being the vehicle to generate the, the resources and goodwill with which to be able to make water more available. But more than that, I think it's um, like just part of the essence of the organization that it's the spirit that ordinary people can take action and make a positive difference. These are big problems. The UN considers them, the World Health Organization considers them, national governments consider them, and they're really hard problems to solve universally using complex policy. But while that's happening, while that process is working its way through, which it is, we feel like we have a responsibility to take action today and just ordinary people can make a difference. 
as it should be, of course, it's always about the people. Sure. I don't think things like wine to water ever start with a strategic plan or like a long-term vision of where it's going to be. It's often passion-driven and that's how it's sustained, is just the belief that we can do something, we can make a change, we can make someone else's life better because of our actions. And at the same time, it's about the partnerships you form to support your mission. Can you talk about some of the organizations and businesses you have partnered with? Sure. So we benefit from all types of partnerships and relationships. Most fundamentally is the water usage committees in the communities where we program. They represent the constituents of that community and they're such important collaborators because they help us understand what's culturally acceptable and what are the important things related to water solutions into their communities. Uh, we also benefit from government support um, in terms of alignment with government priorities and initiatives in the countries where we work across the world. We partner with other NGOs who are either involved in delivering water solutions or maybe are doing something near water solutions like community development or health programs, and we're able to support them with a water solution on the side. And then, of course, as a NGO, not-for-profit organization, as a charity, we benefit from the support of incredible individuals and companies who support us financially with the work we do. Right. It's all passion-driven, right? Like you were saying before, there's so many people out there who want to do the right thing, who want to do good for humanity, including yourself. So why don't we talk about you for a second? What brought you to Wine to Water? So I've worked in the humanitarian space for the last 25 plus years, even though I look much younger than that. And a lot of that work has been involved in healthcare in developing countries. And I was driven to that sort of work from my background as a registered nurse and really heavily focused on the idea that it's just fundamentally not right to me that I could be in an environment that has so much and yet there are people in the world who have so little because people like me don't take the time to, to address that. So for me, it's been a profession of passion and part of my life course for a long time. And I've worked in many different countries. I've had the benefit of working with extraordinary people and extraordinary organizations. What was very attractive to me about Wine to Water was it's a very small organization, but mighty in terms of the impact that it has. It's very entrepreneurial and very uh, result-driven. So I think as you progress in one's career, in bigger organizations, it just becomes more of a organization and more of a business-type activity than it is the ability to be so close to the impact that your work is having on direct individuals. And it was extraordinarily attractive to me to see an organization looking for someone with my type of background who was looking to... Uh, to do something fun. Yeah, I can only imagine what it must feel like to see the direct impact of your work in, in real life with your own eyes. Yeah, I, I think when I was younger in my career, I had a very pragmatic operational focus to the work that I was doing that, you know, we need to build this structure, there needs to be this water, there needs to be this health clinic. And it was all very linear in terms of what we needed to do and how we would do it. Uh, I certainly feel very differently about that type of program now that I have children of my own. So 
Certainly when I see children who don't have access to the same fundamental opportunities as my children do, that's extraordinary and extraordinarily powerful and very compelling. Very difficult not to take action as a result of that because it's heartbreaking. And again, for the want of my time or my ability or the organization, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to look away from that. Exactly. But the point is, we don't have to wait for something to happen to us directly for us to act on it. Is there anything you can say so people understand the magnitude of the work that you're doing and how crucial it is for us to support the work that you do? So there's no doubt that a lot of the work of Wine to Water is focused internationally, but there's needs for water here in the U.S. like there is everywhere else. And most significantly, we see that during times of natural disaster, um, predominantly during hurricanes where usual water systems are disrupted and supply of bottled water is just disrupted. Also, in thinking about the experience of Turkey, just a very humanizing experience in that the Turkish government had done an amazing job of the immediate emergency response. Every community we went to had bottled water to drink They had the availability of food and availability of tents and shelter. And that sort of ticks all the boxes of the things you need to stay alive. But what we heard consistently was it would just be so nice to have a hot shower. After a week of not being able to bathe, a hot shower, and it was cold. There was snow on the ground. So I think we're constantly exposed to and reminded of just these humanizing things that we all experience. And I I, I guess... If there is a way to try and think about that in the context of our own lives, it would be to think about what if there was no water available in my house? What if I couldn't flush the toilet? What if I couldn't have a hot shower today, tomorrow, the next day, as a thought experiment to understand the life impact that people are having? It certainly does make us feel grateful, but it also makes us understand the challenges that people are having. And really that it can happen to anybody. I mean, we got a glimpse of it during the pandemic where, you know, basic necessities and things that we always take for granted were gone in a matter of days. Yeah, life's fragile. Exactly. So, Richard, how can we get involved? How can we support you? I guess the easiest way is to look at our website, wtw.org. There's a lot of great stories and background information there about the organization, where we've come from, the types of work that we're involved in is a lot of great photos and videos to give you the context of, of what we're trying to do. There's also opportunities there for people to join us as volunteers, either as part of our international work or as a micro-volunteer in their own community advocating for issues around water. There's also opportunities for people to become supporters and donors of the organization. But again, I think the, the founding principle that still rings true is taking the concept that ordinary people can make a difference just by choosing to. And we have some vehicles for that in terms of our volunteer programs, sponsorship programs, but I think that's also a message that's important for people to take on board outside of Wine to Water and find a way to express that in their own lives. And of course, as you know, we have our brand new donation hub where we will be featuring Wine to Water. I will be sharing the link to that at the end of the broadcast, so please be on the lookout. And Richard, thank you so very much for sharing your work and mission with us today. It's been such a pleasure learning more about Wine to Water. Thanks so much for having us. Obviously, we're, we're very proud of what we do, and 
thanks for the forum, thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for everything you're doing to to share good news in the world. You're welcome. That's what we're here for. Good luck with all your projects. Great. Thanks very much. For many of us in the developed world, it's hard to imagine living without the luxury of drinkable water. But as we have seen in Flint, Michigan, and most recently in East Palestine, Ohio, the threats to clean water can hit anywhere. As Richard mentioned, it's not just about the water, but the impact that it has on the environment, on healthcare, on women's empowerment, and the economic growth of the areas affected. I invite you to learn more about Wine to Water's groundbreaking work by visiting their website at wtw.org. While you're there, you may also want to watch the brand new film called Beyond Water, the documentary. And don't forget to visit our donation hub at bit.ly slash one-on-one donation hub. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go grab me a glass of my favorite bread. I hope you do the same. Until next time, be blessed. Ciao. Thank you for listening to One on One with Ilian. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. For more information and inspiration, join us again next week. To catch our latest, you can follow us on all socials at One on One with Ilian. That's it for this episode. See you next time.